All right. This is episode 59 of the Bridge Podcast. I'm joined today by Killick Hines. Killick is a guitarist, if you want to call him that. Um, a little bit more than that, of you know, guitarist, etc. Um, <laughs> thanks so much for joining me, Killick. It's uh, I've been looking forward to this. Thank you, John. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. So I, I like to do a sort of uh, intro question of just asking people if they enjoy coffee, if they have any coffee habits that they can share. And I'm curious, do you drink coffee? I, I do not drink coffee. I, um, I've i had one cup of coffee in my entire life. What? Um, yeah. Um, I was 18 years old. I was in Mexico and, um, and, I, and everybody was having coffee. So I thought I'll have coffee. And uh, one cup of black coffee kept me up for about five nights. Yeah, or four nights. I don't want to exaggerate, but I, I I couldn't sleep the entire time. It was actually horrible. <laughs> wow. Um, I'm I'm sorry that that was your experience. Uh... <laughs> um, it tasted good. I'll say that much. But it kind of I don't know. It sort of um, it it you know peppered the entire experience from then on. <laughs> Man, that's that's crazy. I, I most everybody responds saying that they do drink coffee. Okay. And I got a like I. I sort of assumed that there was a slight chance that you didn't drink coffee, but um, <laughs> do I do I look like somebody who doesn't drink coffee? <laughs> I mean, as I've as I've gotten to know your music a little bit more, I, I've like you know my introduction to your music was through uh, your Halloween thing with Henry Kaiser. Oh, okay, and, yeah. and then I read about your Rain and Blood cover, and then as I got to know your music more, I was like, this dude is a very peaceful dude. So um, oh. um, it makes sense now. Uh, cool. Well, interesting. Um, Cool. Uh, I do. Uh, I do enjoy a little bit of caffeine. I have to say, you know, um, I can't. I can't have much. I, I'm. I'm pretty sensitive to it. But um, I like kombucha, so I have one. I have one going off to the side here, um, and uh, that that's got a little bit of caffeine. And sometimes, like in the morning or something, I haven't done this actually in years, but I'll have a little bit of green tea, you know, and and that's that's kind of nice. But uh, coffee, I'll leave to just the olfactory. <laughs> <laughs> experience gotcha. interesting i mean for me it's a very central uh part of like motivating creative stuff but um i feel like that i'm curious to hear about what fuels you creatively then instead um i mean i'm sure there's plenty obviously but fermented vegetables maybe <laughs> okay nice what's your favorite fermented vegetable oh um wow I do love beetroot, you know, or, you know, when nice. beets are, are fermented, um, uh, you know, it's just, it, it, the, the colors are so potent, you know, it's, uh, um, I'm hoping it translates to the health benefits, but, um, pretty much anything fermented. Um, nice. yeah, I, I, I like, I like sour, stinky, uh, you know, bitter, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> nice. Uh, do you do mostly your own fermentation or do you uh, just sort of like farmers markets or you know regular markets? Um, yeah, farmers and regular markets for the most part. Uh, we've tried a little bit here and there and um, I'm not the most successful um, fermenter. <laughs> um, if success is judged by the uh, potability of the <laughs> end result yeah it's uh it, yeah I, I don't have i don't have a, a green thumb or the uh you know the proverbial uh um, um food touch i, I don't <laughs> interesting well i'm also a big fan of fermentation and f fermented stuff um that's cool okay i like uh I like to know where your microbes are you know uh, well <laughs> better than um, ever 
Uh, so, you know, like I mentioned, uh, Henry Kaiser in that video was the first mm -hmm. thing that I saw of you. And I was like, I need to talk to this guy. Um, oh, wow. I was immediately intrigued. Um, and, you know, like, you know, you see your guitar and it's like more strings than there are frets. You're oftentimes <laughs> doing no frets whatsoever. Um, how did you get into sort of non-guitar guitars? Like, um, I, I said you're a guitarist, but hmm. it's you're beyond yeah, a guitarist. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, so I'm trying to think exactly. I mean, I started I started playing electric guitar first. You know, most people with guitar start with an acoustic guitar, but I had an electric guitar and I mostly played it unamplified. So it was essentially acoustic, just really quiet. Mm -hmm. And I think that was really formative for me. I think um, I, I really got into the sort of tactile sensation of, of the instrument, you know, the, the sort of interface with your um, uh, your your mind, body, soul um imparting and infusing and 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 absorbing and and um and getting in, you know energy from this inert object you know that that actually does have a sparkle of uh you know some sort of some sort of spark of life in it mm -hmm. and um so already you know so from the very beginning there was sort of an unusual um relationship to sound making you know most people were really into um mo mo most of my peers you know it was always amps on you know um and um you know playing at high volume and i actually although i did that i did it you know um to play in bands and stuff i i really liked just that kind of quiet sensation which i now recognize as something like the chamber music phenomenon or mm. um or the salon you know the just the small gathering or even even just people sitting around a campfire or something mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so so starting to look at the uh, the parameters and the boundaries of guitar, I started thinking, you know, what are the what are the different um, what are the different attributes that could be there that that aren't typically there on a six string guitar? Mm -hmm. And um, so I think I started with the idea that I wanted to expand the pitch range. So um, I didn't do much in terms of um, detuning or scordatura. But I um, I ended up getting a seven-string acoustic guitar in 1995, which at the time was extremely unusual, I, um, um, nearly unheard of. Um, the steel string. I, I mean, I know it was steel string. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And I mean, I know George Van Epps, and you know, and and um, I know there were innovators in Russian seven strings go back to the 1800s or or more, um, but in the modern acoustic guitar um you know lineup there there weren't really many seven strings at the at that time so that that was a breakthrough actually i would say you know just having having um it wasn't so much about the seven strings or 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 the the chord shapes that it would open up it was more about range for me mm -hmm. um and i i tended to use it um sort of as in an accompaniment role rather than um rather than just playing everything really low i i was using it more like a six string with the ability to you know doom, 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 you know to be able to go like that underneath totally. six string type stuff um but again i'm speaking in generalities because i don't really have i don't have a, a set repertoire <laughs> you know on on any instrument um so so yeah so the pitch thing was first and then the next horizon was um, at the same time, 
um, fretlessness mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, on, on guitar per se and um, and then MIDI as well, you know, and, and MIDI, this was also this would have been around 1997 and MIDI. Um, you know, the MIDI protocol was probably exactly as it is today, but, mm-hmm. uh, the sounds were, um, lacking, you know, generally they, they weren't, they weren't the most inspiring sounds there. They're what we'd, we'd call now general MIDI, you know, and, and, um, um, they have a charm, you know, they have a charm for sure. <laughs> yes. And there's, there's a place, but it's not the most, it's not the richest and most enveloping sonic experience, you know, it wasn't back then. So that at the time was more of a novelty for me, you know, or, or, or sort of like, oh, you know, I'm dipping my toes into it, but I don't know if I uh, am really, I don't know if I'm getting a lot out of it. <laughs> right. um, and I don't know if I'm contributing much with it either. So, but the fretlessness stuck, you know, that, that I really, I really liked. And it was a seven string. It was an electric seven string fretless. And, um, and that, um, that was really, really, really helpful. Um, it ended up being sort of a, a stepping stone. I ended up selling it and then um, and then moving to the Harpeggione, which is my main instrument. Um, the Harpeggione is a it's a six string instrument that has 12 additional sympathetic strings. And it's um, based on the Hardanger fiddle of mm. Norway. And um, so the Hardanger fiddle is essentially a violin that's made for cording and also has sympathetic strings that go through a channel in the neck. And then they emerge over the top of the body to their own separate sympathetic resonating bridge. So it's a combination of the Hardanger fiddle and the Arpeggione from Italy, which is a bowed guitar uh, tuned in standard, uh, you know, uh, E-A-D-G-B-E. And... um, uh, but but bowed, you know, um, and played between the knees. Generally, it didn't u- usually have a spike. So the harpeggione has a spike. Um, it's got frets. They're quarter toned up to a fifth above the open string. So like up to the seventh fret. And then there's um, uh, equal temperament standard fretting up higher. And um, the tuning is sort of a modified cello tuning. You know, the middle four strings are cello strings. Um, I keep, I keep the lower two of those, um, down a step and a half. And then the, uh, the upper two of the cello strings down a step. And then I have a higher string, uh, which is just below the guitar's high E. And then the low string is really low. It's in the contrabass range, actually below, uh, below a bass range. So, um, and that, that just developed over time as well, you know, just a, a series of, um, you know, happy accidents. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I know that you uh, work with a number of like luthiers and instrument makers. Who is uh, the sort of hand behind uh, the Harpeggione? Um, it's Fred Carlson. Okay, Fred Carlson. Who is in Santa Cruz, California. Very cool. And um, yeah, Fred, Fred's Fred been a really, really major force in my artistic development. You know, he's a good friend and, and um, uh, I, just encountering his work around the year 1996 um, in a magazine called American Luthery um, just opened a portal. It just changed everything for me. Awesome. Yeah. Um, 
I guess like, uh, I mean, first of all, the, the range thing is an interesting way to sort of dive into that. I, I just, yeah. as of like a year and a half ago, became a seven string guitarist. And like, I, I'm like, oh, why, nice. did I, why did I not jump on this earlier? Um, <laughs> well, so welcome much, to the club. <laughs> yeah, feels good to be, uh, you know, one of <laughs> us. Uh, 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 there's so many interesting, like, uh, I mean, like the Pat Metheny sort of weird harp guitar, like Michael Hedges, I know mm -hmm. that you're really into. Um, can you sort mm -hmm. of just... For people that aren't aware of like atypical guitars like this, who are like some really cool people to check out? Oh, besides uh, yourself, an atypical guitar world. And thank you, um, um, Hans Reichel okay. comes to mind. Hans um, is was a, a German um, instrument maker. He made very unusual instruments that oftentimes had a third bridge, which means the um, the length of the string is divided somewhere, so you get if you amplify the 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 back side or the the opposite side of the bridge, you get these celestial overtones and all sorts of things. And um, he was also a font maker as as well. That was apparently how he made a living was um, making fonts. And uh, yeah, and he made a really interesting instrument called the daxophone as well, which cool. is um, a, a very fascinating vocal. It's almost like an acoustic theremin or some, something like that, um, using a wedge of wood on a tongue made of wood. You you um, kind of rock the, the, the wedge called the dax, and then you take a violin bow or a cello bow and you bow the tongue and you get these um, wild, wild jumps and pitch and uh, all kinds of unusual timbres and colors. It really sounds like the human voice for the most part. Um, um, you know, if the, if the human voice was a robot, um, <laughs> you know, from, <laughs> from 10 million years ago or something. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, let's see, Sandy Ewan, um, okay. she's a guitarist from Texas and she lives in New York and, um, she takes the, an approach with the guitar. She plays it on her lap, you know, a conventional six string guitar, but, um, over the course of a show, she almost never reveals any of the sound characteristics of guitar. There, and she doesn't use um, she doesn't use effects pedals. She uses a little bit of stereo panning, but it's almost all done with implements and um, yeah. just her fingers. Um, just she's extracting. Um, I guess some of the sounds might be considered industrial. You know, like like the sounds of electricity or um sounds of nature you know um buzzes and clicks and all kinds of things but it's really it's really quite it, it's quite profound and there's a there's a real um real dynamic motion to it you know it's definitely there's propulsion even though it there's never anything that could easily be categorized as a time signature or a tempo even you know there's there's none of the there's no musical attributes we're familiar with, but but it just keeps moving and unfolding. It's really great. Um, awesome. Um, I'm trying to think of some other unusual guitarists. Um, uh, I mean, is it is it okay to just say there's so many? I love them all. And, of course, uh, yeah, <laughs> and I'm, and yeah, because I'm drawing a blank right now. Yeah, I mean, those are two people that I'm unfamiliar with that I'm looking forward to diving into. Oh, great, great. Um, so uh, you know, I was super intrigued to see that you did a cover album of "Rain and Blood" by Slayer. Yeah. Um, and I love that album. Uh, but 
I, I kind of had no idea what to expect. And so when I heard it, I, like for a second, I was like, huh, how is this? And then I was like, oh, I hear everything. Like, and when I was reading you talk about it, uh, you described something as basically like playing in the tenor of something without necessarily having a clear link to like the reference material. Yeah. And um, I think that's very interesting to like uh, distinguish between the tenor and the reference material. Mm. And so um, I'm curious sort of like if you can just talk about that cover album and um, like how how you translated that because it's it's so much the same material, but it's so different in wow. quality. Um, I just love to hear about that. Thanks. Um, yeah, that was done in 2004 or the recording, the studio recording was done in 2004. And um, yeah, when I was a kid, um, so I was I was 13, I think, when Rain and Blood came out. And it was a really, really important album for me and and my my cohort. And um, I mean, like really important, you know, I mean, I, I, I would say I've probably heard that album more than any other album ever. I've, I've, Interesting. I've okay. probably heard, I, I know I've heard it more than a thousand times in, in its entirety, you know? And um, so I, I, I kind of knew every, like every little nuance of the album, you know, uh, mm -hmm. beyond just the, the, the songwriting or the lyrics, like I know where, okay, I think there's a splice there, you know, and, and there's like, there's little, there's little things that I just, I always picked up on and um to me that sort of stuff is just as interesting as the as the songwriting or the or the performance um the the uh the circumstances under which something is made are interesting to me mm -hmm. um you know I look at it I look at an album Rain and Blood by Slayer or or almost any album as a it's a snapshot it's a it's a it's a it's a picture of a certain time and a certain place and a certain mindset and um, you know, and, and, um, obviously Slayer, they were, they were, they must've drunk coffee, I'm sure before recording that album, because <laughs> at the time it was probably the most intense thing, you know, right. anybody had ever done, uh, in the metal world. And, um, yeah, so I, so I guess one day I was sitting around, you know, it was probably around 2003 and, um, and I just, I started thinking, you know, wow, you know, like there are certain albums that although I may not listen to often any longer, you know, they, they were so formative. So I started thinking, you know, wow, you know, how much of how much of my sensibility was influenced by that album? And the, the, the answer is a lot. The answer is a real lot. And so I I wanted to so I, I don't know how I got the idea exactly to to cover it, but um, I thought if I was going to do it, you know, the songs are so short that I had to do the whole thing because the whole album is a little less than 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And um, the original, I should say, is less than 30 minutes. And mine is about the same. I, I keep pretty closely to the time parameters on it. Um, but I started, I guess my approach was just, I listened to, once I decided I was going to cover it, I just listened to it again and again, over and over, like with new ears or, or you know, new perspective from some, you know, distance. And um I, I just started to hear that, you know, the 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 foundation of the album, everything is so solid. That's what makes it enduring and a classic. It was kind of an instant classic. Um, but the uh, the structures are really strong. And the way that things flow from one to the next is, you know, kind of seamless. Mm -hmm. It's it's really, really a well, it's it's a well-crafted work of art. And um, you know, it's not just, you know, uh, you know, crazy 
you know, just crazy teenagers or, or you know, early twenties <laughs> people um, playing as fast as they can. It's also that, I suppose. But but whether by accident or design, they they really stumbled into something you know quite beautiful. And um, so I don't like to repeat things in my artistic life and even in my own life. I, I don't even like to overuse certain words. I try to I try to always find. <laughs> a different word when I'm, mm -hmm. when I'm talking about something, um, I fall short, but I, like I try, I just don't like, I don't like cliche. Right. I don't like, um, I don't like repetition unless it's in minimalism, you know? <laughs> and so, so I, I thought, okay, the other thing, the other challenge is, is to translate a group effort to a solo instrument without, mm -hmm. you know, there's no effects. The only effect on the album is some reverb here and there, um, just to give a sense of space in the, in the, the slower part, you know, the, uh, the more spacious parts of which there are very few. <laughs> um, and, um, so I started thinking, you know, what's the most important thing to convey the information of an album. And generally, I think with most albums, you would say it's the, it's the vocals. If there's vocals, you know, that's the most important thing that people are really latched onto, but with rain and blood, the, uh, the focus shifts pretty often. Sometimes it's the vocals, you know, when, when, when Tom Araya is screaming, you know, mm -hmm. that's what you're, that's what you're really focused on, but take that away. And then the drums are are prevalent here. The guitars are prevalent here. Um, you know, rarely the bass on that album, but, but there's always, it's always shifting. So I suppose intuitively, I just kind of like, I went with the energy of what conveys the song, what carries the song. Cause I wasn't trying to do the, uh, the thing mm -hmm. of, um, it's 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 more popular now than it was back then but um um uh, doing like all of the parts of a song at once on guitar you know mm -hmm. you know where you're doing the drums you're, you know you know doing this and then and then you know and then the guitar and then and then with with your nose you know you're yeah. making it you know, <laughs> you know do the melodies and stuff so i so i thought i i wanted it i wanted it to kind of be that narrow focus you know so it's almost like uh, you know, the eye of Sauron is shifting and changing and, you know, and then sometimes gets really tight and opens and, you know, and so that that's that's what I try to do. I mean, um, I'm probably assigning meaning to the creation of it that may not have been there when I did it. Um, but that's what it seems to me now. That's what seems like was going on. And um, yeah, and I feel like I feel like it was pretty successful um, in the sense of conveying the vibe of the album without being, a, you know, just a, a cover, which would, in my in my estimation, would be kind of pointless, you know, to mm -hmm. just do a direct cover of it because right. it's already been done and it's been done better than than I or anybody could do. You know, nobody's going to make a better Rain and Blood than Slayer, you know? Exactly, yeah. So, um Interesting. That um that makes me think of the guy who plays like, you know, Dvorak's New World Symphony on classical guitar. And it's like, that's yeah. super impressive, but that's absolutely not what you're doing. Um uh <laughs> excuse me. Um thinking about Slayer, like, you know, I, I understand being a 13-year-old and like really connecting with that album. Um <laughs> and there's something that's like, you know, you're young and you like like evil things, maybe, or yeah, like you like horror <laughs> movies or whatever, but um, <laughs> There's something about Slayer where it's like, you know, it's so, um, you know, so death focused and so evil. And um, but at the same time, like you're obviously a very like peaceful, you know, life affirming person, which <laughs> sort of doesn't blend with that, which is interesting. But then like 
uh, I guess like this is a an ill-formed question, but I'm curious, like part of the Slayer sound to me that's so central is like that parallel fourths quality. And there's something about mm. that that sounds so sort of uh, uh, maybe not like there's something that's severe sounding about it. And I'm curious, um, like, what do you think of that particular parallel fourth quality of them uh, as somebody who's listened to that album so much? Well, I think um, that's certainly present, and 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 it does have it does have a sort of impact, you know, um, um, you know, especially especially through like big amplification and stuff like that. And I've I've seen Slayer live. I I saw them on the Rain and Blood tour, you know, and the visceral impact is, you know, yeah, it's it's extraordinary. It's 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 you know, it's a full body experience for sure, but. Um, but I think if you dive behind it a little bit, Jeff Hanneman's writing in particular, he wasn't afraid to put in um, unconventional for heavy metal sort of harmonies that actually they don't neatly adhere to any um, any well-established notion of classical um, mm -hmm. harmony. But they, they, he was an intuitive, of, of course, you know, he, he sort of, you know, he just went with what sounded cool, I think, but but he wasn't afraid to do things, you know, like like having um, major thirds descend and stuff like that. Um, he wasn't afraid of major thirds. He wasn't afraid of um, happy or pretty harmonies or, right. you know, um, but when those happy and pretty harmonies are are kind of shifted, you know, in blocks, you know, uh, over time, they, they can they can stack up to be something, you know, ambiguous and and then but but definitely leaning towards evil <laughs> you know um and 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 that's what's so great about it is that you can actually i i can hear it in sort of different ways i i hear that it's i can hear that it's evil <laughs> and uh and all that sort of thing but i but i also hear that it's fun you know it's just it's just it's uh um it's just it's a celebration of of just like let's make the most awesome thing we can you know mm -hmm. <laughs> Cool. Um, interesting. Well, yeah, that's a. I, I really enjoyed your uh, version of all those songs, and even the cover art, like somehow strangely hints at the cover art that they had. Um, I, I don't know if there was a connection there. Um, thank you. The um, the cover art. So the version that's on Bandcamp um has like lots of skulls, and it says, and and there's writing that says war, war, war all over it. Um. The art was done by an artist in Athens named Ryan Miller, and he had this concept called war art. Mm. And uh, and the war art always had that juxtaposition of, um, um, you know, the horrors, you know, of of war and 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 hatred, but then also like some hope, you know, some some you know flower growing or, or something like that, you know, um, very stark contrasts, you know. And um, there was a restaurant in Athens called The Grit and Ryan worked there and he had his he had that piece um, on the wall at The Grit. And so I just got to talking with him and, and uh, you know, and and um, I was like, you know, that would be the absolute perfect thing for this rain and blood, you know, and, and so he agreed to it. And um, the original cover was actually just black i didn't have the the art that that artwork with the skulls by mm -hmm. ryan was inside the uh you know the booklet the, okay. the folding booklet but uh for the internet um 
if you just had it be black, it just looked like there was nothing there. So, right. and, and, and it's funny because, uh, you know, Spinal Tap, of course, famously, you know, has, has the, uh, the all black album, you know, um, and then Metallica has the black album, but, um, but both of them had some embossing or, or something else. They weren't really actually just a black square. So, um, so I thought, you know, that's what I'll do. So, so the original was just, just the black square, which I think was, I, I, I think was more black than Spinal Tap or Metallica. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, yeah. So Ryan's art now, um, now is the cover of, of the, uh, of my cover. <laughs> Very cool. Um, it, I, I, with like the sort of evil aesthetic that goes into that, like, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to like make assumptions, but you seem like a fairly pacifistic guy. And I'm yeah, uh, yeah. wondering how you <laughs> connect with that. Cause like, you know, like I, I feel very much the same way and I love like brutal technical death metal and all this yeah. sort of stuff. But then you like, you become aware of some of the history of it and like uh, not as much with death metal, but like with black metal where, where there's like yeah. genuine hatred and violence. And it's like, yeah, no, 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 no. And it's I weird I, to have any connection with that. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, there's a there's a big issue with distinguishing between the artist and the art sometimes. Right. You know, unfortunately, if if we applied modern standards to a lot of the things that we love from uh, from, you know, hundreds of years ago, we, it wouldn't be acceptable. You know, the the origins or, or at least the uh, the thought process of the person would be, you know, really frowned upon, I think, by most people. Um, and um, you know, and certainly with the modern phenomenon, you know, well, it's not modern anymore, but, you know, the, the rise of black metal, you know, in, in Norway, um, uh, while some of it is just, uh, you know, it's an exploration of, of the dark side of humanity and all that. Um, some of it was actually, you know, like more like a, a manifesto, an actionable manifesto. And, you know, and it caused a lot of harm. I mean, you know, a lot of those beautiful churches were burned and, people were murdered and all kinds of stuff, you know? So I, I, uh, I get my preference is that storytelling be reserved for storytelling and, and mm -hmm. not, um, not, not a call to action, you know, not, right. not, not anything that is, uh, should be emulated or, you know, th these are, I, I look at something like, uh, the Slayer album, um, most of the, the lyrics on Rain and Blood, um, you know, as a cautionary tale, you know, or it's an exploration. I don't, I don't think there are any, I don't think there are any um, topics that should be forbidden from, for, uh, from discussion or, or uh, parsing, mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah, but leave, leave the, the, the hatred, you know, to fantasy, you know, leave the, you know, don't act on these things, you know, the, the human mind can, you know, spin all kinds of stories and can spin or, or reveal prejudices and, and hatreds or whatever. But uh, in my estimation, uh, it's, it's definitely best to yeah. uh, let those things just dissipate into the, you know, into the wind, you know, let, let them go. Don't, mm -hmm. don't advance them. Don't make them part of your legacy. <laughs> you know, don't, you know, um, it's, when you when you sort of unburden yourself from acting on bad things it un, it, it it makes you it makes you walk lighter you know you you don't you don't carry 
as heavy a burden. You don't carry as heavy a baggage. And hopefully that helps you not take it out on other people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, take out your your fears, your hatreds, your prejudices, whatever. Um so I forgot your question. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it was a question. I think it was <laughs> just me talking. Um <laughs> in our email exchange, you um, you know, you mentioned some uh, events in your life that were life affirming or like, you know, near-death experiences and um sort of like the calamity that influenced your music. Mm-hmm. And um I'm I'm curious to hear a little bit more about just like uh I mean, that is interesting how much sort of like rough stuff has gone into various albums of yours but um what what sort of like lessons did you learn from that or how did it impact you as a an, a musician uh, well um i guess i just have to differentiate between the different calamities <laughs> um each probably had lessons you know um and uh the major one i suppose the biggest one was in 2008 I had a bleeding duodenal ulcer um, and um, it kind of came on without warning, I guess, um, and uh, didn't have any pain associated with it. You know, there was no there there was no real discomfort, but I I just woke up one day and I was feeling the word I was using was lazy. I was just feeling like Hmm. I couldn't get anything done like I or I, I couldn't I couldn't get things happening, you know? And, um, anyway, um, long story short, I lost over half my blood, um, internally. And, um, I, by the time I was in the hospital, um, yeah, it was, it was really touch and go. (laughs) And, uh, and there was a point at which, um, you know, I mean, there were several points, my heart stopped, you know, a few times and, um, they, they did the, uh, you know, just like the movies, you know, they did the stuff and, um, I was in and out of, um, the material reality we're, we're surrounded with, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And, um, yeah, I, I kind of like at a certain point, I sort of, I sort of just drifted away if, if that makes any sense. And, um, uh, my consciousness, my perception, however you want to look at it, um, just sort of, it sort of opened up to the unit, to the universe is the best way I can look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like as if you were just, you know, there was no longer, you were just in outer space, you know, and there was no longer, um, there was very little in the way of sensation or, or feeling or, or, or thought. Um, and then I think I did have a thought, um, and it was basically about my wife and just that I didn't want her to be alone. And I sort of came back, you know, like, like, you know, you know, like, like just popped back into my body and, um, yeah, that, um, that happened, you know, and then, and then I would say a few days later, I, I, I kind of had, uh, a sort of, um, like stripped to the marrow kind of experience of, um, just like, I just felt, I felt this huge sense of just being sorry for anything bad I'd ever done in my life. You know, uh, anytime I've ever hurt anybody or, or, 
said something I shouldn't have said, or, or, you know, or, or just all of, all of my regrets or, um, um, yeah, my, my sadnesses, my, my, my angers, everything just kind of came to a head. And, uh, and I just, I just released, I, I cried a lot and I just, I just felt this big feeling of uh, how sorry I was for, you know, anything I'd ever done to contribute to the problems in the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then also, um, um, just that I was filled with love, like love for people and and places and things and, you know, and, uh, just everything and everyone. And, um, um, yeah, it was just, it was just a, a, a total experience, you know, a total sensation. And, um, it's not as immediate, you know, this is now well, 15 years ago, 14, 15 years ago. It's not as immediate, you know, the, the, that the, uh, th- those, those feelings, um, are not at the forefront of my awareness right now. Um, but they're definitely on the, uh, they're on the back burner, but they're, they're, they're running in the background, you know, as, mm-hmm. as they would say on a computer, you know, um, these are background tasks, you know, um, that, um, I feel they, I feel the sort of that foundational principle of just trying to, um, trying to be a better person, uh, just kind of informs what I do. I, I don't always live up to it, you know, but I, but I, um, I try to have that be the case. And, and I think this comes back to music and, um, how, um, you know, music I I feel is making music is one of the best things a human can engage in because they're not, when they're making music, they're not killing anybody. They're not, (laughs) they're not, you know, they're not causing any real harm unless the music is particularly obnoxious at the wrong time, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, but, so I feel like I, I feel like music making, and that's part of why I've 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 um, dived into music so much, uh, not because it's an easy pass against my natural tendency of of killing and mayhem, you know, but um, <laughs> but because I'd rather look at it from the other way that it's 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 something really positive to indulge in, you know, to to uh, to to fully embrace, you know, mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah, that between between music making hiking and then and then my rekindled love of uh bicycling you know um um those are those are my three favorite things you know music hiking and biking and then you know followed by um you know i guess like literature although i'm a really slow reader and then um and then movies you know like especially um like really good (laughs) sci-fi okay (laughs) um uh, some of this you know i feel like also starting to hint at your interest in meditation and like you know a a different sort of angle on this instead of like near-death experiences your you know 11 day vipassana retreat and so i'm curious how um things like vipassana or just meditation uh interact with your music playing and i mean like when do they blend together into a single thing Mm. i mean like uh yeah I, i guess i'm just curious about your relationship between music and meditation well, meditation to me, I, I mean, so there's formal meditation, you know, in the sense of, of uh, you know, plopping yourself on a cushion or, or you know, sitting upright, closing your eyes, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, and, and and focusing on, you know, either a mantra or the breath or, or um, 
whatever technique. And, and I've done a lot of that. Um, but, um, but I feel like music making in itself is a sort of meditation in the sense that the, uh, the analytical brain, the analytical part of the brain, I'm, I'm speaking about, and I'm speaking about improvisational music generally when I say this, um, but the, the analytical part, you know, take, you know, kind of like takes a nap when you're, when you're, um, engaged in, in that task, you know, in, in sports, they call it the zone and, um, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's like sort of effortless activity. Um, mm-hmm. you know, your years of training and, and enculturation and, and practice and everything factor in, but then you can kind of let go of it and just let these sort of autonomic processes, uh, take precedence, you know? Mm-hmm. And so in that regard, um, well, well, it's not strictly speaking meditation when I'm performing, it's got a lot of the attributes, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, and in performance, um, you know, in front of an audience, especially, um, with improvisational music for me, um, this wasn't always the case, but I've been doing it for a long time. So, um, I'm, I'm focused on the task, but not really thinking about it, just kind of doing it where it, whatever it needs. And then I'm also, aware of the audience and and aware of the energy in the room and and the surroundings and circumstances but i'm not focused on that either you know i'm sort of i'm sort of um yeah it's very i mean you know it's 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 a flow state you know and um if something really really strikes my attention you know of course you know that that can that can pull me out of the moment but that's very rare and mm-hmm. um yeah so I, and that's my preference. And I think as a performer, anyway, a live performer, I've moved away from memorized music. Um, it's almost exclusively improvised, mm-hmm. um, as a, as a composer or as someone working, you know, just at home, um, I, I will do preordained music, you know, where, where I, I am, I have to think about how, to transition from this to this or how these, you know, these chords work against these. But, um, but as an improviser, I don't, I don't like to do that. I don't like to do, I don't like to have that sort of back office stuff happen in a concert setting. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, It's just not my preference, you know? Um, um, And I admire people who um, not only thrive at recreating their memorized music, but actually really, really enjoy it. You know, I, I think that's wonderful. And you can feel that you can sense when a performer loves sharing that stuff that they've played, you know, a million times before, mm-hmm. but every time they find some new fresh way to approach it. And I think that's wonderful. I don't, I don't have that tendency. I just don't. And I've tried, I've, I've over the years, I, I, I tried to really and fully enjoy that, that sort of thing, you know, I've, uh, in different styles, you know, whether it was, um, rock or jazz or folk or heavy metal even. Um, and I never fully enjoyed it the way I do improvised music. So, so I just, I realized, okay, that's my thing. I, I should just, I should, uh, I should stick with it, you know, and just honor that. But mm-hmm. as the Vipassana aspect, <laughs> um, Vipassana sort of, um, sort of confirmed a lot of the things that I experienced or encountered or, or learned from 
they validated, I should say, not confirmed. Um, they, they sort of, um, they made me realize, okay, I was really, I, I, I did have a profound encounter, you know, with, with the unknown, you know, in the year 2008, um, it, it, it kind of showed me that that is, that is the ultimate destination. The ultimate destination for all of us, um, is, uh, is unknown. You know, it's, 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 it's a blank slate, you know, and, and we can, um, you know, we can put our beliefs or our hopes into it, but ultimately no one really knows what happens, you know, to the, the human soul or whatever, when, um, you know, when we go bye-bye. Um, so, um, so yeah, so, so Vipassana gave me more of that sense of, of that, the, the big mystery, you know, and, um, and then also I think with Vipassana, there was a, a, a deepening of my ability to access the really bad things within us, you know, or within mm. me anyway. Um, the, the things that I, that I don't like, you know, the, 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 the hatreds and the prejudices and things like that. Um, and I, I, and I don't know if this is a metaphor or, or what, but, but what I encountered was, um, like almost like a plume of, you know, of volcanic fire, you know, just shooting up, you know, out of a pustule, you know, like a, uh, a, just, just a massive, you know, um, seismic event, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, the, that, that plume of, of, of molten lava shooting a thousand feet in the air was um was kind of all the hatred of humanity all the all the all the all the wars and all the negativity and all the all the bad stuff you know that all the heavy stuff and even the petty stuff you know even the small little things all of it was just you know just i was i was sort of experiencing and observing at the same time this you know, just all this hatred, you know, and, uh, and it just kept pouring and pouring and, you know, day after day, this was my experience within the meditations, you know, and, um, and then finally, after several days of that, um, you know, this is many hours a day of meditation, you know, like, like, um, 10 or no, 14 hours a day of meditation, actually. And, um, after several days of just that, that, you know, plume of hatred, (laughs) you know, shooting into the air. Um, uh, it started, it, it started sputtering a little bit more. It wasn't, it wasn't a solid, it wasn't like, you know, just this dense mass, you know, it was more like kind of like coughing and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't really generating as much. And, and then finally, by the end of the Vipassana retreat, the, uh, that, that, you know, that, that hole in the ground was um more smoldering you know still it was smoking and and there's charred remains but it wasn't so much like spitting in the air and um yeah i think i think basically i i don't know that i tapped into anything epigenetic or, or cosmic but um um my encounter was just that i i just i let all this hatred you know, that was inside me just kind of like burn out, you know, just let it, just let it do its thing, you know, and didn't take it out on anybody. It was really intense. It was really, it was, uh, very difficult, you know, to, mm-hmm. to, uh, 
to endure. Is that the right word? Cause that makes it feel like I was just stealing myself. And I was, and then on a certain level, just like, you know, just let it be over, please. You know, like, but I just stuck with it. And I don't know, it, it just, it, it unburdened me addition, like further, uh, further unburdening. And um, did you say that this uh this whole plume thing sort of petered out at the end of the possum or like in the middle or um when did you towards start? the end towards, towards the, the end, end. Okay. Mm, yeah yeah G- good timing because then you know then you have to get your car and drive home you know <laughs> it was a long drive because uh the the retreat center is like oh like more than six hours from here you know gotcha. so okay so so that's what i was thinking i was like oh you know do i really need to be you know <laughs> on the road for six hours dealing with a, a plume of molten hot hatred you know yeah. <laughs> so th- thankfully thankfully things calmed down quite a bit before i i had to you know say okay bye everybody okay you know yeah. i'm glad the timing was right and that's yeah, all timing was good that's all very yeah. beautiful and thanks for you know sharing such a you know, personal details about all that um uh it's very interesting uh I, i'm curious uh you know i could talk about consciousness type stuff with you all day but um i do feel yeah. like i want to get back to some guitar stuff um i i remember reading you were saying that like you were i think i don't know if it was the harpeggion that you were practicing but essentially while your wife was like asleep and like you knew um that if like there was any sort of stirring then you needed to like calm it down or like pull it back and that makes me think of west montgomery and the thumb it, it, sorry uh, am i getting that right you're correct about my part yeah yeah i don't know the west montgomery thing um i'm pretty sure that he essentially was only practicing with his thumb uh because his wife was asleep and he had to like practice while she was asleep and so like that became the defining sort of thumb technique for him and i I thought that's a very interesting sort of way to cultivate your own sound is like practicing while your wife is asleep that's exactly it no i i relate completely um um so we had this rule for a while that I wasn't allowed to use the bow, you know, like I, I, I play with a bass bow mm-hmm. um, primarily, but, or, or a cello bow, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to use the bow after I think, I think of, can't remember if it was 10 or 11 PM. There was, cause our place, um, our place, you know, is quite, you know, open and small, you know, and so what, you know, anything somebody does affects the other, you know? And um, anyway, um, yeah, I um I definitely what I learned was to really cultivate that, like I told you, the my early interest and in just the acoustic sounds, to really cultivate like what's happening in all aspects of the instrument's resonations, you know, like like not just the uh the overt fundamentals, you know, but um uh fundamental pitches, I mean, mm-hmm. but um but like all of the um the handling characteristics the handling noises that that most guitarists either obscure with distortion or overdrive um or in a like a classical setting or even a folk setting they try to minimize you know they they put these weird um oils on their fingers and you know to 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 keep from having oh, not, cool. not many people do this but but mm-hmm. there, there are people who really want to eliminate all of the uh the squeaks and the creaks and the you know the the fret outs and all these other mm-hmm. you know um inevitable parts of guitar playing you know the guitars they're creaky you know they that's what they do and so i that was actually really helpful i think that that sort of um 
nocturnal limitation <laughs> uh, really, really helped me um, develop um, more of a dynamic range in my playing, you know, so, so things weren't just at, at, at a constant attack or a constant volume, you know, I, I, there's definitely, um, you know, the Herpegion and the Herpegion in particular doesn't readily have a wide dynamic range. You know, it really it's for the fundamental note production. It, it, it tends to be on or off, you know, you, you can pluck it and it does its thing or not. But within that sort of net, you know, that, that sort of narrow confine, I tried to, um, I tried to expand it, you know, to really be able to, to get into the tiny details and then, and then, and then go full tilt, you know, at, at times. Um, so yeah, so playing, playing quietly actually really has influenced me. And even when I play amplified, I, I, tend not to dig in too much I, I i play pretty lightly even mm -hmm. if i'm playing fast or frenetically or or um uh or if the style you know is you know is, is intense like the um the video with henry kaiser you know you, you know that's in the style of uh death metal anyway mm -hmm. and, um but i'm playing very lightly you know in the video so we that that video we were um um what's the word, not lip syncing, but, you know, guitar syncing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the music was pre-recorded and then, and then at least my part, I don't know how, Henry okay, did. interesting. I had to, I had to just, uh, to play and my, my, um, my eight string guitar that I play in that video doesn't have a strap or doesn't have buttons for a strap. <laughs> so I had, I had to, um, in order to look like I was standing, I have one, um, I have one knee on, on the stool I'm sitting on right now. And um, you can kind of see it in the video. It just I don't know what it looks like, but um, so anyway, I'm standing there and trying to balance the guitar because that's not how I normally play that guitar. It's a seated guitar, mm -hmm. and uh, and in real life I used a pick, but on the video I just used my my finger, uh, my my thumb, um, which which I I usually do, but I just I didn't like the sound I was getting for that style, so mm -hmm. I so I ended up using a pick, but. Um, but my my preference is just to play with my thumb. So it's kind of like Wes Montgomery. You know, if, if, uh, <laughs> if he had to do a death metal song, he'd probably use a pick. <laughs> yeah, and if his wife did the the hair and the vocals in the video, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. What, what, I guess real quick, what what's the story with the uh, hair and vocals thing? <laughs> well, yeah, my so um, uh, it's it's a consequence of the pandemic. Um, my wife grew her her hair is usually long but she grew it really long during the pandemic or, or what that means is we didn't leave the house for two years you know <laughs> and so um so her hair got, got longer and longer and longer and longer and um so she finally has like proper old school death metal hair you know nice. it's like uh you know like obituary length you know <laughs> and um so so anyway, we thought, you know, oh, if this is a death, Henry was the one who suggested doing something in the style of death metal. And and um, so I was like, oh, Delene's got to be in it. You know, that's my wife's name. So um, she she's got to be, you know, she's got to be in it, you know. So she agreed. And and then she did these uh, these vocals. Um, so she's not lip syncing. She's hair syncing, you know, <laughs> it was pre-recorded as well, you know, and then, and then she just had to um, do her acting bit. <laughs> 
yeah i i guess the vocals weren't quite tom mariah but like uh <laughs> they're great and i i was uh you know tickled by them um so uh, with the whole fretless thing and like i remember seeing when i first investigated you like uh stuff about like intuitive into intonation and mm -hmm. um uh i guess like i've always taken some issue with the way that the guitar is tuned just like uh and i've let go of this over the years but you know like there are all these issues about like oh uh you know just intonation versus you know equal temperament and i know you're into quarter tone stuff um how do you think about intonation like uh i guess like when you have that whole door opened up with a fretless guitar well you know what's funny with fretless um i think it was this sort of need to prove myself or to um um i was really worried about what others might think of my intonation <laughs> when i when i when i first started playing fretless guitar so my my number one goal at that time was to be able to play in tune, you know, mm -hmm. this, this meaning um, pretty much as we've heard on guitar, you know, you know, and guitars are all like, I, I know what you're saying. Guitars are completely out of tune when they're in tune, mm -hmm. um, you know, but um, we're used to a certain sound, you know, you make a D chord and it sounds a certain way. And, um, you know, and, and the, the F sharp, you know, is just like, oh, why can't it just be a little better, you know? <laughs> And so I, so on fretless guitar, I tried to not only be as good as having frets, but even better, you know, because then I could, I could push my middle mm -hmm. finger back to get that F sharp, like a little flatter than a fret would do. And, mm -hmm. and then that, that was kind of a sweet spot. Um, so, um, so that so that's so I think that taught me I think that initial focus on um being in tune you know so so I wasn't laughed at <laughs> um it taught me that intonation is subjective you know and and there's there's many different systems there's many different um cultural norms and um and I I think my my tendency is to go with the sort of Western, um, you know, chromatic scale. And, um, but, but again, I want the flexibility mm -hmm. to make, to make the interactions between different notes within that Western chromatic thing to make them more pleasing. So the intuitive intonation um, concept that I have is not it's not systematized. It's not rigid. It's basically just being able to play uh, in a way that's pleasing to me in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and typically on, you know, on playback, if I listen back to something that I've done, I, I feel pretty good. I, I, I like my sense of intonation <laughs> mm -hmm. because I'm not, um, I'm not locked into any particular strategy with it, you know? Um, I hear people who are really locked into a strategy and I, and I don't like their sense of intonation. Um, um, I, I absolutely adore Kirk Hammett's lead playing, but when he bends his strings, he just doesn't, to me, it doesn't, it's not going for what I think he's trying to go for, but he's consistent. So that's obviously his, his bag, you know, that's his shtick. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but I don't, I don't care for the result, you know, um, um, on the other hand, you know, the, 
the, you know, I, I love that kind of stuff, you know, but, um, but as soon as he starts bending, I'm like, Oh, don't no, no, no. Or, or keep going or, or, or don't start, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um, to, I guess like it just, I'm curious if you are familiar with these people and if you have any comments, um, it, I think the next guest on the podcast is probably going to be Timusin Sahin. Are you familiar with this playing? I, I don't sorry. know if that's how you say his name. Uh, Timusin Sahin. Oh, I don't a, know name. I feel like uh, he's a dude that you should check out. He plays a, yeah. a double neck guitar. Um, one's fretless seven string. One's just normal six string. Um, wow. I think he's probably going to be the next guitarist. So oh, like, fantastic. Uh, or the next guest, rather. Um, a very cool playing. Uh, the other person I'm curious about is Ellen Fullman. Are you familiar oh, with Oh, yeah, the, the long strings. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I love I love her work, yeah. Very cool. Um, Absolutely. Those are both people who have interesting sort of uh, intonation perspectives, so I was just curious. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I do I do love when people have a very highly developed um, um, personal approach, you know, to intonation. You know, Harry Parch being mm-hmm. probably the, the big one. Um, Ellen Fullman is a great example. And um, um trying to think of other people. Oh, even people like um, 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 uh, Bathiki Kumalo, um, mm. the bassist from Paul Simon's Gra- uh, Graceland album. Okay. You, do you know? You know? Um, maybe you know the song "You Can Call Me Al." Um, it has this. It, it's unusual because it has a uh, like a a bass break in it. You know, there's this little um, sort of spontaneous sounding bass fill that's unaccompanied in the middle of the song or towards the end of the song it's really really wonderful but he's fascinating because you can watch him play a song that like it sounds the the intonation is really unusual um you know and um but but then you watch him play it again and again and again he does it exactly the same way on fretless you know he's playing fretless bass and um really really like just fascinating he's got his own he's truly got his own sense of intonation you know and it really it works it's it's um yeah it's just it's it's just highly idiosyncratic you know mm-hmm. um, and i i love that i love i i love when people have any of the attributes of music you know highly personalized or highly individualized you know and then even better is when a group has a highly groupalized <laughs> sound you know uh where where it just doesn't sound like anybody or anything you know like like uh the shags are a great example of that you know hmm. um they um they were making music and they were sort of guided by their father who thought they were going to become superstars but um they 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 had a very very unusual understanding of what music pop what pop music was or could be and um it ended up being a, a favorite album of lots of people like um i think nrbq actually ended up covering it and uh, frank zappa said it was in his top 10 albums and, okay um do you know this one mm-hmm. um it's called philosophy of the world by the shags i'll have to yeah. investigate that sounds it's, cool it's it, it'll it's yeah it's mind-blowing yeah there's nothing like it it came out maybe i think in the late 60s or maybe 1970 thereabouts okay uh, yeah and they're and i think two of the three sisters are still alive and they've done a um they've done a um reunion concert or or set of shows but they made it much more the music fits much more neatly into uh conventional expectations of music you know it's it's still got that 
it's still got that weird flare around the edge, but it's much more, um, it's much more rote rhythmically and stuff like that, which to me loses a lot of the charm, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? Um, it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, um yeah. I'm curious if any of the sort of considerations that you have in terms of like intuitive intonation um, translate to rhythm. Like I'm somebody who like, I, I feel like I can't get into just intonation because I don't want to buy a new instrument personally. So <laughs> I like, I try to apply the the same ideas to like, you know, uh, basically to rhythmic content, uh, which because it's all, it's all kind of the same, right? You know? And so I'm yeah, curious yeah. if uh, it translates in your mind in a, in any sort of particular way, um, just intuitive rhythm or anything like that? Um, um, just to backtrack a little bit, one of the things um, I'm working on, uh, or I worked on, I, I actually was really fortunate. I had my very first residency anywhere ever um, about two months ago. Awesome. In the North Georgia mountains, uh, the Hambage Center. It was really, really it was wonderful. I had two weeks and um, we socialized for dinner and, um, but for the most part, I was by myself, um, you know, for all, all of the uh, the daylight hours. And um, the thing I was working on was, uh, um, I I don't think there's enough information to be a book, but I, I'll put out a, a leaflet or a pamphlet at some point. Um, different ways to be microtonal without the use of any implements mm. uh, on, on guitar. Okay. So, cool. um, and... I think I don't have a count, but maybe there's 15 or 17 or 18 techniques that anybody who has a guitar can, you know, can try. Um, Most of them are, some are really easy. Some are really difficult. And, um, but it's just, it's a fun way to expand the, the, the pitch possibilities. Um, And I think I include even the basic ones like bend the string, you know, (laughs) you know, that'll do it. That'll change the pitch. But 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 I try to go beyond the basic ones as well. Um, but as to rhythm, I kind of feel the same way. You know, I um, when I was younger, I had a I had a hard time with um, metronomic precision. You know, and I think what it was was I didn't I didn't have an internalized sense of of uh, drive. You know, I, I I my sense of rhythm my natural sense of rhythm i think was much more all over the place i wasn't able to focus on just the uh, the heartbeat you know i i was um i was drawn you know like this way and that way you know i, I like my my attention wasn't really steady um for for the the boom 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 right. boom you know it it just wasn't there and like that's not how i heard music and but then i realized that that is how most people perceive and encounter music. It's, it's, it's with some sort of rhythmic drive. Right. So I had to, I had to, I don't know, learn, learn, or just, or, or just, uh, soak in, you know, um, trying to get that metronomic sense of time. Um, not, not to be, not to be like, stiff or whatever but you know to have to have feel to have you know to have a little bit of groove you know and and uh um be able to differentiate between you know playing behind the beat playing on the beat playing in front of the beat that kind of stuff um but but if i'm really being honest my my basic natural tendency is to um um to 
be flexible, be, you know, be, um, be flexible with tempo and, and then even, um, even notions of time signature. Um, I don't, um, when I'm improvising, especially I don't, I don't adhere to, I'm not counting. I'm not, you know, and I'm not doing one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three. I'm not doing that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. I'm, 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 I'm just expressing, but I feel like there, there are, there are certain hallmarks of a mistake. And I think a mistake is something that makes either the person doing it or the person listening uncomfortable. Okay. Um, and it, like, um, like, Ooh, you know, like if they, you know, if you go like that, if, if that's the reaction from yourself or the listener, then it's a mistake basically. <laughs> um, and anything else, I think as long as you, uh, are intending something intentional and you have enough experience to sort of gracefully navigate a sticky spot, you know, when you find yourself in, Oh, it's all about to fall apart or go off the rails that you can kind of, whether it's through, um, um, you know, just winding down or, you know, or ramping up or, you know, or, or, there are ways there are ways to be smooth you want to be you want to be cool you know right and uh so i um i feel like that's my natural tendency is to sort of like i'm aware i'm aware of i'm aware of listener expectations of time and and pulse and stuff like that but i like having the flexibility to um to deviate from those expectations you know and that's something that i've cultivated you know i've cultivated being um familiar with it and comfortable with it and i've played enough shows and had enough minor had enough minor train wrecks anyway that um that if a train wreck happens or a minor train wreck happens i'm able to adapt i'm able to roll it in and um and accept it <laughs> and uh and move on you know not not linger and not keep the energy stagnant you know not mm -hmm. keep the uh the focus you know like like oh man you know that thing that happened three minutes ago oh you know <laughs> i can't let let that go you know because when you think about it in a concert you know if if somebody's counting the mistakes or, or observing the mistakes right uh for for a professional musician you know how many how many like awful mistakes does a professional musician in the court make in the course of an hour long performance you know not not very many awful mistakes right mm -hmm. if they make any then maybe they make one or something and it's usually just momentarily right it's like like they didn't hit a note right or missed the symbol or you know or, or just got off track a little bit but you you quickly recover you know and i think um and i don't i don't want to see I don't want to see improvisation as just uh, a set of um of traps to avoid, you know. Right. But um but I think that um just having awareness that those traps are there, you know, <laughs> and and um that that goes a long way to kind of making it um an enjoyable experience for myself and and anybody who's listening, you know. Mm -hmm. Um just don't linger on on the problems, you know, just celebrate the uh the minor accomplishments, you know, and, uh, yeah. And, it, and it, I don't know. I mean, this sounds like the pot, the power of positive thinking or something like that. And I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's a factor, but, um, but, um, with rhythm, 
rhythm is probably at the foundation of, of all music, um, whether the music acknowledges it or not. You know, Western classical music tried to deny the existence of rhythm, you know, for a long time. Rhythm was this thing that, okay, if we have to have rhythm, it's just going to be 4-4 four, four at, um, you know, at a, at a, at a, uh, at a, at a speed that won't, you know, inflame the, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, the, 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 uh, salacious, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, but, but most other music in the world, and I think increasingly even Western classical music or, or modern symphonic music from Western cultures, um, is hyper aware of rhythm, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and the emotional effects that it can have on people, you know? Um, and, you know, I think there was a tendency improvisation, uh, free improvisation tends to go in waves in terms of trends or, you know, like, uh, you know, at times it got to that, um, there was, there was the movement of the, uh, like the reductionist movement where, um, uh, it was primarily out of Germany where, um, this was like in the nineties, um, people were doing as little as possible. And, and that was the art, you know? Um, so like there was a trombonist who was big into that and, uh, the trombonist would stand on the stage. Um, the show had started, I guess, but nobody was really sure if the show had started and the trombonist was just standing there and then maybe would, uh, disassemble the trombone or something and occasionally make a sound like, you know, like, like that, you know, and, and that little sound was the only audible sound from the performer until maybe six or seven or eight minutes later, there'd be a sound like, um, that, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, and on and on. So, mm-hmm. um, I'd like to think that at this point, free improvisation, no one needs to, um, stick with some really small version of what's possible. And, and I'd like to think that people can go anywhere it needs to go. If the music wants to have um, like beats, you know, in the sense of like, you know, countable, danceable time, that's mm-hmm. fine. That's great. Why not? You know, because for a long time, it's like, oh, no, you, you know, nothing you can count, nothing, uh, nothing you can dance to, nothing you can hum, uh, no resolutions, certainly no major chords, no triads, you know, <laughs> and um, 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 nothing can be funny. Nothing can be, you know, you know, on and on and on. And um, so I think I think freedom and rhythm has to include playing beats, you know, if if you're going to if you're going to pl- if you're going to play, play what you feel, you know, and um, hopefully, you know, um, other people will enjoy it the way you do. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so uh, I guess, you know, we're we're at like an hour 20 here and I want to be respectful okay. of your time, but uh uh, I just have uh, a few more questions. Uh, I guess like you're extremely prolific. You have like 300 plus albums out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, I, I, like you've been talking about sort of like what a mistake is and, um, you know, having like that bare presentation of everything. Uh, was that like something you consciously decided to do to just be kind of constantly putting stuff out or I mean like there are other types of people who it's like they're super particular about what they release and that's never been my approach but like part of me wonders if I benefit from it um because 
I don't, I don't know how much I benefit from actually putting everything out there. Um, do you ever think about these types of things or like uh, what's the I'm, sort of story with that? Yeah, um, I'm I'm probably a little bit of both, actually. I am I am super particular, believe it or not. Um, what what I've put out. Um, I mean, it sounds it sounds ludicrous, but it's not comprehensive, you know, and I'm not saying I've held back a bunch of subpar material. I don't mean that, mm-hmm. but um I've done I've done a lot that's not on the internet. You know, I've done I've done tons, you know, and uh so the things that are on the internet I I stand behind, you know, even with if any of them have flaws, you know, or if I was uncomfortable with them. Um uh but everything on my bandcamp page, you know, I I I I heartily endorse um with you know with the acknowledgement that um that this was what I did on a particular day or or it was the culmination of of a few months of preparation and you know writing and organizing or whatever to get to that point um so so I am particular but I'm also prolific um and I think the pandemic has changed a lot of things because um I I think that there was a sort of um there was a sort of immediacy to a lot of what I was doing before the pandemic, you know, where I I I would create something and then and then as quickly as possible get it on the internet to share. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then with the pandemic, um yeah, you know, it just felt like I, I, I'm I'm sure I'm not alone in this. I was just I was searching for meaning, you know, and and uh, and I I wasn't finding the same fulfillment in um, cranking out music as as I was. I just I just wanted I just wanted a, a you know a, a blanket and uh, you know <laughs> you know and world denying goggles. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, and so I just I you know I kind of shifted my energies and uh thankfully i found a group of young improvisers from around the world um we ended up forming something called habitable records um and uh so a lot of my projects started being remote you know which was i'd done it before at times but um but that sort of in-person stuff had kind of ceased for a while you know mm-hmm. and um um so these remote projects i had to i had to kind of re imagine what what was possible and um you know there there are challenges you know to improvising with somebody uh, you know a, across the ocean or something mm-hmm. you know it's it's uh it's it's very different because improvisation group group or duo improvisation is typically about it, it's a dialogue it's an exchange of of information in real time mm-hmm. so all of a sudden you have this sort of time displaced uh, factor, you know, this, that, that, that you have, um, yeah, like, like, okay, I'll make something, I'm going to send it to you. And then you send me something. And, um, it's a completely different way of working for me, you know? And so it, it, there was a steep learning curve, quite frankly. And, and so that's part of why my, um, my breakneck pace of, of, of releasing stuff really slowed down considerably. The other thing is, I started taking on more ambitious projects or, or or what I mean by that is projects that like literally take more time to, to complete, you know, um, Mm -hmm. 
Um, whether that's because like it, with one example of, I have an album coming out very soon with um, my Italian drummer, composer friend, Francesca Ramigi. Um, that album, we actually recorded in person in March. Um, she was able to, to come down to Athens and we went to a studio and, um, you know, it was a really, really wonderful experience, but on the back end, um, I was tasked with doing the mixing and mastering, which I, I love doing, but the, the mixing was really complicated. There, there are, uh, up to 30 tracks on some of the songs, and these are kind of unusual sounds. There's a lot of electronic sounds, a lot of acoustic sounds. Um, you've got drums with an extremely, uh, extremely wide dynamic range, you know, um, she's playing everything from, uh, you know, like, like just running her hand on a piece of paper type sounds to full blast, you know, drum stuff. And then same with the instruments, same with my stringed instruments, you know, uh, being, um, you know, loud, soft, everything in the middle. And it was really hard. It's like, how do you present? Cause that what's funny about that is it was actually real life, real time improvisation, but then I have to sculpt a story out of it on the back end because mm -hmm. The recording doesn't capture what we were feeling in the room. It it, it just it it's it it was a very neutral observer, you know. It it didn't um it didn't feel what we were feeling, you know. And uh, my recording engineer friend Jesse did a, an absolutely amazing job of capturing all the information. But then I had to I had to sort of uh, shape it and sculpt it into um, an enjoyable listening experience, you know. And uh, trying to remain true to the actual exchange of information in person, you know, I, I didn't want it to be something it wasn't. So, um, so it's quite, it's quite true to life. And it's, it's, uh, and I feel it's um, kind of how it would have felt if you had been there in person, mm -hmm. but that stuff takes a lot of time. I mean, that, that, that mix, I worked on that for, oh, probably four months or something. I mean, not, not full time. I, you know, I, I worked on it whenever I could, but it took a long time and, and, um, and then the mastering took a long time for similar reasons. You know, it was, it was quite honestly, the most challenging project I've ever, uh, worked on as on the engineering side, it was, uh, and I was learning new speakers and, and, um, you know, I had, I, and, uh, we actually moved my, my office to a different part of the house. And so there were a lot of factors, you know, um, informing that, um, yeah. Do you feel like um, the same thing that you were saying about improvisation and sort of like the analytical brain, uh, you know, sort of like taking you know a break, uh, does that sort of ring true for that as well with the mixing and mastering or are you in more analytical mode? Mm, it's a little bit more of a hybrid, you know, I, I, I would say the um, the analytical brain remains on, I think, when I'm making decisions. And that's why it takes so long, I think, um, because it's not just like, you know, oh, I, that feels good. That feels nice. Good, right. done. You know, it's it's it doesn't happen that quickly. Not for me anyway. When when I have to engage my thinking brain, um, uh, little gets accomplished. You know, <laughs> I, I'm I'm much more productive when when I'm just you know riding cosmic waves. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I yeah. So, uh, but I do enjoy it very much. Um, you know, I, I love doing that, and I I feel like um, through these to me, difficult projects, I, I learn a ton that I wouldn't learn otherwise if I wasn't challenged. Because 
that one I was really challenged, you know, quite honestly. And I feel like the end result is really unusual because it's it's unusual music, or at least the arc of all of it together as a unit of 11 songs. It's unusual, but the mixing and the mastering, not only from my my memory and experience, but I think the end result is actually unusual. It's it's an unusual treatment of this source material, you know, this this raw material that my other engineer friend captured so well, you know, it's so it's it, it's fascinating to see these things, you know, take on their own their own life. And uh, only really only like a handful of people have even have heard this music yet. So I'm excited to get it out there. I feel like it's a real breakthrough project for um, for my for my take, you know, um, you know, for my part, it's it's uh, it's unusual. It's it's engaging. It's, um, you know, and I, I hope compelling, you know, to 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 somebody. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Um, well, the last thing I'll ask you, you know, uh, I see that you have tattoos on your knuckles that say read books and um, <laughs> you, you mentioned um, or oh, cookbook. Oh, the, my my camera seems to do an automatic zoom thing. So <laughs> cookbook. I thought yeah. I saw a read the other day. Uh, yeah, that read? says, uh, uh, am I doing it right? Re uh, readjust. Oh, interesting. Okay. I thought I was saying read books, but so readjust and then cookbook. Well, so. Um, <laughs> I've created I, my own story here about yeah, your yeah, tattoos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it also, yeah, it also says uh, just read. So. So the readjust thing, um, um, actually, my wife suggested I do that. Um, and we realized that I could turn around and say, just read. Um, so I used to work for the University of Georgia I for um, 13 years and then and then a little bit um, here and there after that. I, I worked at the um, the writing assessment lab. Um, so we dealt with standardized English language proficiency tests for the state of Georgia. Interesting. Very and um, so uh, anyway, the readjust thing and just read is was kind of a like just a hilarious in joke, you know. Um, and for a while at my office, they they wanted to make a poster of me saying just read, you know, um, having my knuckles say that, you know, because uh, we had these. Um, uh, we had these inspirational <laughs> posters, you know, like Yoda would say, you know, read a book and, um, oh, I can't think who else, uh, like, I don't know, Tony Danza or somebody like that. <laughs> Yoda and Tony Danza. <laughs> um, um, well, I, I guess I, I asked this because, uh, I'm just curious if you, I mean, this is a, you know, open-ended question, but, uh, are there any books or, you know, you also mentioned sci-fi movies. I'm just curious if you could curate anything, uh, for myself and uh, the podcast listeners that uh, oh, you wow. would suggest e either books or sci-fi or yeah. anything. Oh, wow. Books. Um, wow. There's, there's an incredible book called um, the perfect American. Okay. And um, I think Philip Glass ended up making a musical out of it or a, a, an opera out of it that I, I have not seen, but um, the perfect the perfect American. And it's basically, it's a fictionalized account of Walt Disney's last days. Okay. Um, and it's, um, yeah, uh, you know, just, um, uh, it, it's, it's searing. It sticks with you. It really does. And, and there's some scenes that you'll never, ever forget in the book, you know? Um, and let's see, 
Um, there was a book by a Nigerian American author named Nanetti Okorafor. Okay. It's called Lagoon, and it takes place in Lagos, Nigeria. And uh, it's basically about, um, I guess, about space aliens, you know, coming, but they they arrive in Lagos, you know, and and uh, all the um, confusion and 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 revelations that that happen, you know, during uh, um, when space aliens invade your your town, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's really fascinating, and I've read other books um, about Nigeria, and it's sort of uh, you know, it 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 really deepened my understanding of a lot of the the sort of um, cultural and and even political aspects of of modern life in, in Nigeria, uh, in the city. Um, I'm trying to think, I'm reading a really wonderful book by um, um, by a new friend who I met at the the residency at Hambridge. Um, his name is Jeff Jackson from North Carolina, and the book is called Mira Corpora, and um, it's a sort of coming of age story and it's, uh, it's harrowing. It's really, really, um, uh, very, very, very bleak at times, you know, but, but the, the, the writing and pacing and everything is extraordinary. Um, but like I said, I'm a pretty slow reader. Um, I, um, as far as movies, we've been really loving the, uh, the new Lord of the Rings series. Okay. Um, um, uh, the rings of power it's called. And honestly, it really stands up to the, the original trilogy in my estimation. Um, cause the, uh, I was pretty disappointed in the Hobbit, mm. uh, movies. I, I only saw the first two and I didn't, I couldn't even bring myself to watch the third one, but this is really good. And it's, it's like a prequel to the movies, to the, to the, uh, two towers and, and all that. Um, I don't know. Somebody um, like I, I love the movie Primer in terms of like sci-fi, like weird time stuff. You know, um, I guess. Just oh, kind of, I don't know that one. Uh, it's like I feel like the most heavy-duty time travel movie. Um, in terms of just like taking it seriously and how it would work out, but it's also the type of movie that because of the nature of time in it, you have to watch it like multiple times to appreciate the sort of new insight that you get. Oh wow. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Recent? Uh, I think it's from, I want to say it's from like the early 90s. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm going to write that down right now because uh, yeah, I'm yeah. curious what you you would think about it. Um, it's kind of funny that you mentioned the, uh, you know, uh, aliens landing in Legos type thing, because uh, I was thinking of asking you about sort of speculative uh, exomusicology. Uh, I talked to this guy previously who wrote a book about this and I think that's such a fascinating topic. Like what would wow. alien music be like? Um, I immediately, but... <laughs> you know, it's immediately in that folder is uh, um, Spock, you know, and the, and the Vulcan harp, you know, <laughs> 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 I, I mean, I guess that's EXO, you know, <laughs> totally. So musical. Um, uh, I, I know. I mean, I've, ne- you know, honest, I've, I've not really ever given that any thought. I've never really thought about what, you know, um, well, that's not true. My whole life has been devoted to <laughs> making music that doesn't sound like what other people make. So maybe, maybe I have done it. I just haven't, I haven't put two and two together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, a big topic to you know open up as I'm asking the supposedly last question. But last um, question. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes wow, no, people that's, to that's talk really about big. it a little bit deeper. Well, um, yeah. 
Well, uh, you know, next time we'll have to, uh, like, I would love to interview you because now, now I'm curious about, you know, all kinds of things. So, um, um, yeah, I'll have to start a. a <laughs> <laughs> and I will say also that, um, you know, your mention of the third bridge is kind of interesting because, um, this podcast was going to be called the third bridge briefly. Really? And then, um, I just went with bridge podcast because it's supposed to be interdisciplinary, oh. but, um, I feel like you're the only person that's ever mentioned the third bridge. So, oh, yeah. wow, neat. Very neat. Cool. Um, well, it's funny. I had uh, so years ago, I had a record company called Sol Ponticello, mm -hmm. and the name I, I changed the spelling of an Italian term called Sol Ponticello, which means bowing over the bridge or across the bridge. And so I thought of Sol Ponticello, S O L, like sun over the mm -hmm. bridge. So I've always been fascinated with the, with I like bridges. I like I like I like bridges. I like building bridges. <laughs> I don't think I've ever actually built a bridge like physically, but you know, I, I like, the, <laughs> I like the notion of it. <laughs> yeah. You and a uh, Rick tune should collaborate on a bridge sometime. <laughs> <laughs> the bridge. Definitely. Yeah. No, he, and, and Rick's work has been, you know, central, you know, for, for my electric playing for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I'm very jealous of your wall risk guitar. It's super cool. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's wonderful. You know, it's got, so it has two necks. It has the fretted neck and the fretless neck. And interesting. I've had the fret the I for the first you know six years or so that I had it I just always played fretless but I've I've just kept the fretted on for quite a while and and uh, yeah it's it's been really great you know I, I usually put a contact mic on it so I can get the bitonal activity you know um, between my fretting hand and the the nut nice um, so that's my secret with that guitar it's it's uh, it, does the whole neck come quality. in and out or is it like a magnetized fretboard or um, no, the whole neck. It's um, interesting. Okay. It's got three bolt screws, screw bolts, um, and they yeah, just it, you just loosen all the strings, and then um, um, yeah, just loosen and then take out the bolts. the The ball end of the string is actually at the headstock end, and you just um, pull pull each ball out of the channel, and then um, and then you're left with the the strings are still attached at the tuner end, which is, you know, by your leg. Um, so it's, it's really easy. That's the guitar I usually travel with, you know, um, and the same with the, uh, the other Rick tune, those, um, both, both of them have the necks come off. Very cool. Interesting. Um, Rad, well, Killick, um, it's been a pleasure talking to you and, uh, hopefully we talk again in the future. Um, I'll yeah. put a bunch of links to all your music and all the stuff that we talked about and various Thank recommendations. You. Um, yeah, anything uh, you want to point people towards or, um, you know, any links or anything I should include beyond that? Um, yeah, I, I wish I had sort of like an easy primer, but, um, uh, something that, that was just amazing that I just participated in was playing with Paolo Angeli from Sardinia. Um, Paolo plays a prepared Sardinian guitar. So he's got motors and foot pedals and all kinds of things, um, attached to his guitar but he he's a really really deep and wonderful musician and uh um we recorded a studio album which um i'll be mixing and mastering slowly but um there is a live video of our duo perform of uh live performance on youtube on my um my youtube thing it's the first thing that comes up and we were joking because uh um i'm gonna i'm gonna be turning 50 soon um i guess so today's the 11th. So three weeks, I think. And, um, um, 
Paolo is, I think, 52, maybe. And um, but he was saying that we both seem like we're 38, you know, so <laughs> so we called the live performance. Uh, we feel 38. Cool. Um, yeah, I, I think I saw that pop up. Um, uh, cool. Interesting. <laughs> Um, Red, well, uh, I'll point everybody towards that. And uh, yeah, thanks. So well, much I for really appreciate me. this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Well, Killer Kinds, it's been a pleasure. I'll talk to you in the future. Okay. Take care, John. You too.